Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part three of General Conference Postmortem from October of 2017. This episode covers the Sunday afternoon session of General Conference with a particular focus on a talk by Elder Ardern about how it is that Mormons should not look at any materials other than those produced by the church in order to answer their questions about Mormonism. But before we get to that scintillating talk, there are a number of other juicy tidbits that we will pick through on our way. And I hope you enjoy this analysis of the Sunday afternoon session of General Conference as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you. At last, we come to the final session of General Conference, the Sunday afternoon session, which begins with a talk by Elder Russell M. Ballard called The Trek Continues! Exclamation point. He begins with a story about Jane Manning James, whom he refers to as the daughter of a freed slave, a convert to the restored church, and a most remarkable disciple who faced difficult challenges. Yes, Jane Manning James did face difficult challenges. What Elder Ballard does not mention is that a number of those challenges she faced within the church due to the priesthood and temple ban on blacks. Going from the Wikipedia article on Jane Manning James, she traveled with her husband to Utah, spending the winter of 1846-47 at Winter Quarters. She petitioned the First Presidency to be endowed and sealed. She had to petition the First Presidency because she was not allowed to be either endowed or sealed because of her race. As a result of her requests, she was allowed to be sealed to Joseph Smith, but not as a daughter as she had requested, and not even as a wife, which might have had its own problems, but at least it would have put her on an equal level with the many other white women who were sealed as wives to Joseph Smith for eternity. No, instead of either of those, the First Presidency allowed her to be adopted as a servant into the Joseph Smith family through a specially created temple ceremony. Now, in that ceremony, Jane Manning James was not allowed to go into the temple to do the work. Instead, it was done for her by proxy, by white people, even while she was alive and outside the temple. Not surprisingly, Jane Manning James was not satisfied with being an eternal servant in the Smith family, and so she continued to petition to receive her own temple endowment through the rest of her life, but she was denied those rights during her lifetime by the First Presidency of the Church because of her race. The good news, I suppose, is that in 1979, after the priesthood restriction was lifted on blacks in 1978, she was posthumously endowed by proxy in 1979. So apparently she was never able to get actually into the temple, but she was sealed to Joseph Smith as a servant by proxy during her lifetime. And about 70 years after she died, she was posthumously endowed by proxy. So those are some of the challenges that Jane Manning James faced in the restored church in Utah. Elder Ballard does not mention those. Sister James remained a faithful Latter-day Saint until her death in 1908, which is correct in spite of those challenges which I have just mentioned. Going back to the PR campaign of the church with the yellow-shirted angels with the um, Helping Hands logo on the front, President Ballard doesn't think that President Eyring has mentioned enough about these, and so he says, President Eyring, may I add appreciation to the tens of thousands of yellow-shirt angels serving in Texas, Mexico, and other places to your tribute. I think it's fine to recognize that members of the church are out there helping other people in need, 
Once again, my problem is not with that. I think that's a good thing. My problem is with the advertising that the church is doing through this effort. It is Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, the first verse that has Jesus saying, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. Alms are your charitable givings, your charitable works for others in need. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. And of course, as Mormons know, that injunction is so important that Jesus repeated it to the Nephites when he appeared to them after his resurrection in the old world. Third Nephi chapter 13 verse 1, Verily, verily, I say that I would that ye should do alms unto the poor, but take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. So if we interpret these advertising gimmicks by the church in light of the scriptures, both New Testament and Book of Mormon, I suppose it's a good thing that we are doing this PR campaign by helping others. But as soon as we go from helping others for helping's sake to doing it as a PR campaign to get attention from the world, we lose any reward in heaven that we might have otherwise had. Now Elder Ballard is going to give a portion of his talk to trying to brush off the plate people that he sees as competitors to his authority in the church. He says, we must be careful where our footsteps in life take us. This is going along with his image of the trek continues and we have to stay on the path of the gospel. We must be careful where our footsteps in life take us. We must be watchful and heed the counsel of Jesus to his disciples as he answered these questions. Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. Now remember, this is an apostle of Jesus Christ who is speaking. He should be able to tell us what is the sign of Jesus' coming and of the end of the world, but he's not able to do that, or at least he chooses not to, and keep those details a secret, just as President Eyring did when he said, we do not know the details about what's going to happen, but we know the general outline from the scriptures. But instead of telling us what the answer to that question is, he instead quotes Jesus' answer to his apostles in Matthew 24. Take heed that no man deceive you. Here, Elder Ballard is going to focus on take heed that no man deceive you. And he's going to talk about different people who are trying to deceive the saints by leading them away from the church and getting them to rely on some authority other than the authority of the general authorities of the church. The first thing he does is he adds a few words to this verse. He says, take heed that no man, and I add woman, deceive you. Well, what do you mean, Elder Ballard, by adding, and I add woman? Are you just being politically correct here and making sure that this is equally distributed between men and women? No, that's not what you're doing. What you're doing is making a veiled or not so veiled reference to a Mormon lady named Julie Rowe, R-O-W-E, who has gained somewhat of a following among Mormon circles by predicting the end of the world and getting people to believe the end of the world is imminent and load up lots of food storage and support supplies in order to be prepared for the end of the world. From a newspaper article published September 14th, 2015, two years ago, is the world going to end in September? Mormon Apocalypse 2015 prediction has people stocking up on food. That's the headline. It's all about Julie Rowe. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about Julie Rowe. I'm no expert on Julie Rowe. But the article synopsizes, The Mormon Apocalypse believers claim the Jewish High Holy Days that began this week will trigger a financial crisis based on the United States' wickedness. They predict the full moon, September 28th, is the next sign the world is ending. Some of these speculations stem from Julie Rowe's books, A Greater Tomorrow, My Journey Beyond the Veil, and 
The time is now. Roe, a Mormon mother of three, published the books in 2014 to detail a near-death experience. Her two books have sold more than 20,000 copies each. Well, that's big time within Mormonism. Officials with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, however, said they do not endorse the books or their teachings. Well, apparently, Julie Rowe is more than just a passing fad, and she's a significant enough thorn in the side of Elder Ballard that he is going to mention her in his general conference talk, even though he's not going to say her name. He is simply going to say, Take heed that no man, and I add woman, deceive you. Now, here's one of the problems with general conference talks, generally, is that the apostles and the other leaders tend not to talk about things specifically. They talk about things in generality. They imply instead of inform, and this is a good example of it. He wants to talk about Julie Rowe, but he doesn't want to mention her name. And maybe that's because he doesn't want to give her added notoriety, which she would not otherwise have. And he doesn't want to have members of the church who don't know about her finding out about her. And I think this makes sense from one perspective. On the other hand, it sounds rather defensive and somewhat insecure of Elder Ballard not to mention her by name because it suggests that he's worried that if he does mention her by name, people are going to learn about her and they're going to believe her and leave the church. I think the better path would be to say what you mean, Elder Ballard. If you're going to talk about Julie Rowe and how people should not follow her, then mention her name, say what it is she says, and say how it is that she's wrong. Otherwise, you run the risk of people out here in the Mormon audience listening to you in general conference not having a clue of what you're talking about. And if we don't have a clue of what you're talking about, your message is wasted. Elder Ballard continues with his vague insinuations about unnamed others who are doing bad things and who should not be listened to by members of the church. He says, Today I repeat earlier counsel from church leaders. And now we've got four bullet points. Number one. Brothers and sisters, keep the doctrine of Christ pure. Now, what does he mean by keep the doctrine of Christ pure? There is actually no doctrine of the church that has remained unchanged from the beginning of the church. Every single doctrine has been changed in some way, some small, some significant, over the course of the history of the church, a fact that is documented in Charlie Harrell's book, This Is My Doctrine which I've referred to before and which I recommend highly. It documents every single doctrine of the church and shows how it has changed over time. Nevertheless, the church wants to promote the illusion that the doctrine of the church today is the way it's always been since the beginning of the church. Brothers and sisters, keep the doctrine of Christ pure. And by pure, what he really means is correlated. Keep it correlated the way we've correlated it for you and teach it to you ad infinitum and ad nauseum in all of your church meetings and all of your church manuals and in all of our general conference talks. Keep the doctrine of Christ pure and never be deceived by those who tamper with the doctrine. Well, what he means by tampering with the doctrine is suggesting a different idea or interpretation of doctrine than what the currently correlated orthodox Mormon doctrine is today. And when you understand that there is no doctrine today in the correlated church that has not been changed, anybody who might be coming forward and quote unquote tampering with the doctrine is probably actually advocating for an earlier version of that same doctrine. From Elder Ballard's point of view, that is tampering with the doctrine. And once again, notice he's not mentioning any names here. He's not saying, hey, I'm talking about Denver Snuffer here or some other person. He says, keep the doctrine of Christ pure and never be deceived by those who tamper 
with the doctrine. Number two, do not listen to those who have not been ordained and or set apart to their church calling and are not acknowledged by common consent of the members of the church. Let's unpack this phrase. Do not listen to those who have not been ordained and or set apart to their church calling and are not acknowledged by common consent of the members of the church. Well, who fits into that category? That would be anybody who is not a member of the church and who has not been ordained or set apart to their calling. Obviously, you'd have to be a member in good standing of the church to be acknowledged by common consent of the members of the church because, believe it or not, the church in general conference does not put up for a sustaining vote anybody who's not a member of the church. And actually, the people they put up for a sustaining vote are those who are the leaders of the church and are already committed to maintaining the established, correlated, orthodox narrative. So what this is really saying is, don't listen to anybody who's not us. Don't listen to them, only listen to us, because we are the only ones with the right answers. We are the only ones with the pure doctrine of Christ. We are the only ones who have not tampered with the doctrine, even though in actuality it is the leaders of the church who have tampered with every single doctrine of the LDS church over the course of its history. When you tamper with doctrine, it's apostasy. When the leaders tamper with doctrine, it's continuing revelation. Number three, be aware of organizations, groups, or individuals claiming secret answers to doctrinal questions that they say today's apostles and prophets do not have or understand. Well, here's the problem with that. The reality of the situation is that the modern-day apostles and prophets have nothing. All they have is the same old pablum that they've been spouting for over a hundred years, and which has come to be codified and correlated in the current Mormon doctrine of the church. It's what we hear over and over and over again. And what Elder Ballard is saying, this is all we have, we don't have anything more, and we forbid you to go beyond that and to try and find any other answers yourselves. If we don't have it, you can't have it. If we don't understand it, you can't understand it. Let me read it again so you can see what I mean. Be aware of organizations, groups, or individuals claiming secret answers to doctrinal questions that they say today's apostles and prophets do not have or understand. Well, here's an idea, Elder Ballard. Why don't you identify one of these secret answers to doctrinal questions that these other people, these other unnamed people are saying you don't have and tell us that you have it and tell us what the answer is. But this they refuse to do. They will not tell us what these answers are. But Elder Ballard feels the power slipping away because he and the other apostles do not have answers to these questions. Other people are claiming they have answers, but now he's saying, regardless of what those answers are, they're wrong. If we don't have them, they can't have them. You know, this reminds me of an anti-Mormon tract I read about 30 or 40 years ago, and it was talking about the LDS interpretation of Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, which, if I remember correctly, talks about the angel flying in the midst of heaven and how the Mormons interpret this as Moroni. And the argument in this anti-Mormon tract always amused me because the author of the tract said, look, I don't know what the scripture in Revelation means, but whatever it means, it's not what the Mormons say it means. It's not Moroni. I see the same thing going on here. Elder Ballard is saying, look, I don't know what it is that they're saying, or I'm not going to tell you what they're saying about the answers that we don't have, but whatever it is they're saying, 
they're wrong. You need to listen to the leaders of the church who don't have answers instead of listening to other people who are not leaders of the church who do have answers. Finally, we get to number four, which I endorse. He says, do not listen to those who entice you with get-rich schemes. Our members have lost far too much money, so be careful. Now, that's two sentences. It's number four in a list of four. I think this deserves its entire talk. I think far too many members have lost their life savings because of get-rich schemes and affinity fraud, which is rampant in Utah because of the relationships of trust that people have with members of the church. Utah has long been recognized as the capital of affinity fraud in the United States. And the basis for it, as I say, is that people in the church trust their leaders. Now, strangely and unfortunately, and I think unintentionally, Elder Ballard undercuts the warning in number four, which I endorse, with his number two statement, do not listen to those who have not been ordained and or set apart to their church calling and are not acknowledged by common consent of the members of the church. Well, church leaders are ordained. They are set apart to their church calling. They are acknowledged by common consent of the members of the church. And unfortunately, it is these leaders, bishops, even stake presidents, sometimes higher than that, who are using their position in the church in order to bilk members out of their life savings. And it is because they're the leaders that the members have trust in them. So I see number two in Elder Ballard's list as undercutting number four because he says don't listen to people who are not ordained, which means do listen to those who are ordained. He doesn't specify what we're not supposed to listen to them about. And that's one of the reasons why I think this deserves its entire talk. To my knowledge, there has never been a talk about this subject in General Conference. I'm glad that Elder Ballard is at least giving it a passing reference in this talk, but it deserves its entire talk in General Conference. It deserves multiple talks in General Conference, and it deserves talks in General Conference until this practice ceases within the church that the apostles are supposed to represent and protect the members of. After his list of four things, Elder Ballard goes on. In some places, what places, Elder Ballard? Once again, specifics would help because I don't know what you're talking about here. In some places, too many of our people are looking beyond the mark. What do you mean? I don't know. You're implying, not stating. In some places, too many of our people are looking beyond the mark and seeking secret knowledge in expensive and questionable practices to provide healing and support. Okay, now, honestly, I don't know what you're talking about here. I know a thing or two about Mormonism, including current Mormonism, but I'm not positive what it is you're talking about. And if I don't know what you're talking about, how is it that you expect any of the other members that you're addressing to know what you're talking about? Once again, he says this extremely vague phrase, in some places, too many of our people are looking beyond the mark and seeking secret knowledge. I don't know what secret knowledge. Inexpensive. Is it more expensive than a tenth of your income? And questionable practices. What practices? To provide healing and support. What healing and support? I have no idea what you're talking about. I have a vague idea that, once again, this is referring to Julie Rowe, who I believe has a side practice of charging people for some kind of phone calls or Skype sessions where, for money, she helps them out with healing. And I think I read something about that somewhere. And maybe this is what it's referring to, but I don't know. And if really he is in this to protect his people from being taken advantage of, Elder Ballard needs to talk about it and tell them what it is that he means, what it is that's dangerous, how they're being taken advantage of, who's doing it, and for them 
to not allow this to happen to them. That is the duty he owes as a leader of the church to the members of the church. Then he says, an official church statement issued one year ago states, we urge church members to be cautious about participating in any group, once again, the vagueness, in any group that promises in exchange for money, miraculous healings, or that claims to have special methods for accessing healing power outside of properly ordained priesthood holders. Well, the reason there's a problem with this, Elder Ballard, is that as the General Conference talks illustrate, there is no healing power within properly ordained priesthood holders, at least none that anybody in General Conference is talking about. Not in this conference, not in the last conference, as I have been at pains to mention. And so when people start getting hip to the fact that there is no priesthood healing in the church, it is only natural for them, who still believe in healing through the power of God, to turn to alternative sources. The best thing you could do in order to keep people from going to alternative sources, Elder Ballard, is to actually start healing people by the power of the priesthood. He cannot do this, and therefore, he's going to warn people, don't be looking for anything other than priesthood healing, in spite of the fact that we've got no priesthood healing for you. Later on in the talk, Elder Ballard says, stay on the gospel path by having faith in every footstep. This is a variation of his stay in the boat theme, which he gave a number of years ago, which he liked so much and was apparently so popular, he repeated it in a subsequent conference talk. Then last conference, Elder Holland picked up the theme and said, not stay in the boat, but stay in the choir. You remember that talk. And now Elder Ballard is changing it a bit and saying, instead of stay in the boat or stay in the choir, stay in the handcart. Stay on the gospel path by having faith in every footstep, a reference to the pioneers coming across the plains, some of them with handcarts. I am tempted now to talk about Tad R. Callister's talk, God's Compelling Witness, the Book of Mormon, in which he makes an apologetic argument for the truth of the Book of Mormon. I am going to skip that because I really don't see much there that's of that much interest. I think it's largely a weak talk based on common apologetic tactics, but more than that, I'm not going to say at this time. Instead, I'm going to skip to the next talk by Elder Joni Coach, excuse me, by Elder Joni Coke, K-O-C-H. It's always embarrassing when you come to that last name because you don't know if you should pronounce it cock. Probably not. Usually people are not going to want to pronounce it that way. So we have to figure out an alternative pronunciation that is not cock. And it's probably either Koch or Coach. Joni, J-O-N-I. This is not a woman. This is a man. We know that because it's Elder Joni Coach. And he is of the 70. His talk is apart but still one. And he's going to once again bring up the theme of imperfect priesthood leaders and how we need to follow them in spite of their imperfections. I like his comment when he says, as we all enter a meeting house to worship as a group, we should leave behind our differences, including race, social status, political preferences, and academic and professional achievements, and instead concentrate on our common spiritual objectives. This is at least the second time that this kind of sentiment has been mentioned in general conference. And for some reason, whenever there's a list of our differences, it never includes sexual orientation. No, instead, the differences include race, social status. Well, look, at least we've got race in there. That's progress, I suppose. It's only 2017. Including race, social status, political preferences, and academic and professional achievements. And instead, concentrate on our common spiritual objectives. I would add sexual orientation. Apparently, Elder Coach does not want to add that. Then he starts talking about 
how it is that we need to support our leaders regardless of their imperfections. There are comments made in church that subtly destroy unity, such as, yes, he's a good bishop. Oh, but you should have seen him when he was a young man. Once again, this is hitting on the theme that President Eyring mentioned in priesthood session. Don't talk about leaders if you know bad things about them. Don't mention anything bad about a leader to other members because it might affect their faith in that leader. Now the comment here is, yes, he's a good bishop. Oh, but you should have seen him when he was a young man. Well, now that's obvious on its face. I mean, nobody would disagree with that. The problem is the implication is there and intentionally there that this message also applies to anything the bishop might be doing, not when he was a young man, but in the here and now. Criticisms of the bishop, and by extension, other church leaders, including the guy giving the talk, and the apostles, should not be made because it might subtly destroy unity among the saints, and we can't have that. He goes on, oftentimes we put permanent labels on people by saying something like, our Relief Society president is a lost cause. She is so stubborn. So now he goes from talking about the bishop when he was a young man in the past to talking about the Relief Society president in the present. She's a lost cause. She is so stubborn. He says we should not do that. Some start criticizing and becoming divided from church leaders and members for things that are so small. So we're not to criticize church leaders because then we become divided from the church leaders in contradiction to the scriptural mandate that if ye are not one, ye are not mine, which is something that he quotes at the beginning of his talk. And the implication in his talk is that anytime there's any criticism of leaders of the church, it is only because of things that are small. He does not admit the possibility or recognize the actuality that many criticisms of church leaders are not for things that are small, but are for things that are large. But once again, this trope in the church comes up that the only criticism by members of church leaders is for things that are small. And once again, he trots out from the wings, Simon's writer, and tells a story about his name and how Joseph Smith misspelled his last name in a revelation. And his reaction to this event contributed to his questioning the prophet and eventually led to persecuting Joseph and falling away from the church. Again, the simplified version of Simon's writer's disaffection from the church over simply having his name misspelled, when actually that's not the whole picture. But again, Elder Koch doesn't want to tell the whole picture. He wants to give the simplified version. The message is that members of the church criticize leaders for only small, insignificant, stupid things. Again, the message is that members leave the church only over stupid things, and therefore, anybody who leaves the church must be stupid. He goes on to play the blame game and say that if you criticize leaders of the church, then your children may fall away from the gospel and be lost forever. You will not be a family in eternity. You will not achieve exaltation. Here's what he says. We had seen families in our ward who had become weaker in the gospel and had stopped attending meetings because they could not be one with those who were leading, i.e. they would not shut up about the failings of their leaders. I myself also witnessed many of my friends from primary not remaining faithful in their youth because their parents were always finding fault with those inside the church. Hold on a second. Is he really saying he remembers all the way back to primary and that he remembers friends not staying faithful? And he also knows it is because their parents were finding fault with church leaders 
My BS meter is getting buried at this point in the talk, but it is a BS story that supports his point, so I guess it's okay. So here the game is the same thing as what President Eyring said. If you see a fault or a problem with your leader, your job is to keep quiet about it and not talk about it with anybody else because you will affect their faith negatively. They will fall away from the church. Good heavens, it may even happen to your own... Whoa. Good morning, America. How are ya? Here's the 704 coming through right on time. Good heavens, it may even happen to your own children. So no matter what, no matter what your leaders do, no matter what you find out about the leaders, past or present, your job is to not mention it to anybody else. Just keep mum and everything will go along smoothly and without any problems and we will all be one. That is the message of Elder Koch's talk. I'm just going to mention a couple of sentences from the next talk by Elder Stanley G. Ellis called Do We Trust Him? Heart is Good. Well, Do We Trust Him is supposed to be a reference to Do We Trust God? It ends up being Do We Trust His Leaders in Spite of Their Imperfections? Yes, he's going to hit this theme again. Here's one sentence from his talk. Do we trust His, God's, do we trust His commandments to be for our good? His leaders, though imperfect, to lead us well. So this question is, do we trust his leaders, though imperfect, to lead us well? Well, I suppose that depends on whether their imperfections are such as to prevent them from leading us well. That would be the natural response. But his question does not admit of that possibility. His question, rather, states that any imperfections must be minor and must not be consequential enough to prohibit them from leading us well. Therefore, these are small imperfections that he is implying on the part of the leaders. Do we trust his leaders, though imperfect, to lead us well? So in this way, Elder Ellis is saying that if we do not trust God's imperfect leaders, then we, in effect, do not trust God who called the leaders in the first place. Shades of President Eyring. He goes on later in the talk to talk about tithing. Well, tithing had been noticeably absent from this conference, so I suppose it had to be mentioned at least once in the final session. Do we have the faith to trust his promises regarding tithing, that with 90% of our increase, plus the Lord's help, we are better off than with 100% on our own. So once again, here's the veiled promise that if you pay your tithing and you pay it faithfully, then you will actually have more money left over at the end of the month than if you had not paid your tithing because the Lord will help you. He returns to the subject of tithing. Some may consider it hard to pay tithing when finances are tight. Well, yes, usually that's when it's hardest to pay tithing is when finances are tight, which usually happens for the people who are the poorest among the saints. He returns to that. Leaders sometimes find it difficult to expect the poor to pay tithing. So now he's turning things around and saying, you know, it's not the leader's fault who expect the poor to pay tithing. You may remember that in the last general conference, there was a little bit of a hubbub about another 70 talking about people being required to pay tithing and in effect paying tithing, even though they didn't know where the food would come from in order to feed their children because they had to pay tithing, but they paid it anyway and they were blessed. That received some criticism in certain quarters of the church. Elder Ellis here seems to be saying, look, it's not the leader's fault. God's the one who commands tithing, even of the poorest 
So leaders are off the hook. Really, we're throwing God under the bus on this one, as we do in so many cases, when it gets hot for the leaders. It's not our fault. It's God's fault. The leaders are just the victims here. It's really hard for us as leaders to be enforcing these laws that God has given us to enforce, especially when they're difficult to enforce because of the poverty of those that's being enforced upon. So Elder Ellis wants to let the leaders off the hook, and he says, leaders sometimes find it difficult to expect the poor to pay tithing. But they got to pay it anyway. The next talk is Essential Truths, Our Need to Act by Elder Adelson de Paula Perella. And I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, Elder Perella. He talks about strictly following all the teachings that we hear from the prophets and in general conference. He says, these men are God's mouthpieces on earth with the authority to speak and act in the name of the Lord. By strictly following their counsel, we will be protected and receive choice blessings in our journey on this earth. So once again, very much follow the prophet, follow the prophet, follow the prophet. He gives an example. President Ezra Taft Benson, then president of the church, urged every returned missionary to take marriage seriously and make it a top priority in his life. After the session, I knew I had been called to repentance and needed to act on the prophet's counsel. So what does he do? Well, he has a plan. He's from Brazil. He says, I decided to go to my home country, Brazil, to find a wife. Okay, well, that's all good and noble, but it's the way he goes about it that is a little bit unusual. Before leaving for Brazil on a two-month internship, I called my mom and some friends on the phone and came up with a list of about 10 young women, each of them a potential wife. So this is how he's going to go about finding a wife. Methodically, strategically, it makes a certain amount of sense if that is your goal and objective, but I sort of wonder how it is that the one lady out of the ten who ends up being his wife feels about this story and about the fact that she is one out of ten. Not to mention the fact this story is now being told publicly in general conference for all the world to hear. Can you say embarrassing? He says, while in Brazil, after much pondering and prayer, I met, dated, got engaged to, and set a date to marry one of the young women on the list. Yay! I think that's great for this elder. I'm not sure how great it is. For the young lady. It was not record-breaking time for students in Provo, Utah to date and become engaged, but it was fast by Brazil standards. Obligatory laughter. A few months later, I married Elaine. She is the love of my life and a choice blessing. And one of the ten women... <laughs> I'm sorry. She is the love of my life and a choice blessing. And she just happens to be one of the ten women that I put on this list that I had assembled when I went back to Brazil to find a wife to marry. And let's not lose sight of the fact that he assembled this list after talking to his mother and his friends who lived in Brazil. So these aren't even necessarily girls that he knew in Brazil, but girls that his mother and his friends knew in Brazil that he put on his list of 10. I am not suggesting that everyone should make a similar list, but I am suggesting, maybe more than suggesting, mm -hmm, that we always act when our living prophets speak. So what he's saying is, get out there, you young guys, get married, make your list, check them twice, find a woman who's not naughty, but nice, and marry her fast. You need to be doing this. You know, there used to be a time, some decades ago in the church, when divorces in the church were actually lower than the divorce rate outside the church. But my understanding is that for a long time now, 
that is pretty much evened out and divorces inside the church are pretty much on the same level as divorces outside the church. And I've got to tell you, I have a sneaking suspicion that it's talks like this that go out and get married fast have something to do with that balancing of the divorce rate inside the church versus outside the church. Oh, the next talk I want to talk about is really, really bad. It's called Seek Ye Out of the Best Books. It's by Elder Ian Arden. No, Ardern. Ardern? Yeah. Okay, it's by Elder Ian S. Ardern. And the reason I think this is really, really bad is because what he's going to say here is, you, if you have questions about the church, there are certain places that you should look for answers and certain places you should not look for answers. And the place you should look for answers is anything that's available through church-approved sources like the church website. The place you should not look for answers is anything other than church-approved sources and the church website. I know that it's common to say, even though Elder Ardern does not say this particular thing in his talk, it's common to say that if you lived 2,000 years ago and you wanted to know the truth about Jesus, would you go to his apostles or would you go to the Pharisees? That's a common statement. It has a certain amount of force because the answer is supposed to be, well, of course I would go to Jesus' apostles to find out about Jesus. I wouldn't go to the Pharisees because they hate Jesus. But this type of argument does not always hold. I'm not sure it holds in the case of Jesus. And it can be illustrated by using it in different contexts. For instance, in a rather neutral, emotionally and religiously neutral expression, if you wanted to know the truth about Ford, would you go to a Ford dealership or would you go to a Chevrolet dealership? Okay, well, wait a second now. If I want to know the truth about Ford, if I go to the Ford dealership, they're just going to tell me the good things about Ford products and they're not going to tell me the negative things about Ford products. And if I go to a Chevrolet dealership, they're going to tell me only the negative things about Ford products and not the positive things about Ford products. So if I go to either side, I'm not going to be getting the whole truth. The whole truth can only be gained by going to both sides and finding out both the positive and the negative, doing further investigation and figuring it out for yourself. So the same thing would apply to Jesus in the New Testament. If you want to go to the other extreme, you could talk about the Nazis. And I hate talking about Nazis, but I'm just using it for rhetorical effect. If you want to know the truth about Nazis, do you go to the Germans in the 1940s or do you go to the Allies in the 1940s? Who's going to tell you the truth about the Nazis? Well, I think we can all probably agree that if you want to know the truth about the Nazis, you're not going to go to the Nazis because they're not going to tell you the truth about them. Instead, you've got to get your information from all sources and then figure out who's telling the truth, figure out which is most likely, do your due diligence, and come to your own conclusions. But this is not what Elder Ian Ardern is going to say. He's going to say, you just go to the LDS Church, LDS Church, LDS Church. That's the only place you're safe. Those are the only sources that can be trusted. Everything else is a mischaracterization. Everything else is trying to deceive you about what the truth is. And as I have documented in previous episodes, I have shown a pattern of continued deception by the LDS Church about its own history that it does not want its members to know. So if there are people who are contrary to the church, who are using deceptive tactics, and there are some, but certainly not all, some are very open and unbiased and even-handed in their analysis. But if there are some people out there who are using deception in their criticism of the church, it is more than balanced by the deception the church is using in representing itself to its members and to the outside world in the official church sources. Elder Ardern starts off with an analogy, a metaphor, and he talks about seeing one morning a well-camouflaged caterpillar on a beautiful rose bush. From the look of some of the leafless shoots, it was obvious to even the casual observer that it had been gnawing its way through the tender leaves with its menacing jaws. You can see where this is going. 
Allegorically, I could not help but think that there are some people who are like this caterpillar. They are found throughout the world, and some are so cleverly disguised that we may allow them into our lives, and before we know it, they have eaten away at our spiritual roots and those of our family members and friends. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that he may be referring to Radio Free Mormon here. I'm not sure I'm that cleverly disguised, but he may be referring to me. I don't know, maybe Elder Hallstrom and Elder Ardern both listen to Radio Free Mormon together. So, what he is warning all of the members of the church to do is not allow me into your life. You should not be listening to this podcast. You should not be listening to Bill Reel's Mormon Discussions podcast. You should not be listening to Jack Nanique's podcast. You should not be listening to any podcast that's not put out there by the official sources of the LDS Church and approved by the LDS Church. Because otherwise, we are well-camouflaged caterpillars who with our menacing jaws are going to be eating away at your spiritual roots and those of your family members and friends. Sounds kind of terrifying, doesn't it? He goes on, we live in a day in which misinformation about our beliefs abounds. Okay, hang on a second there. We live in a day in which misinformation about our beliefs abounds. That's not the problem. The problem is not misinformation about Mormon beliefs abounding. The problem is correct information about Mormon beliefs abounding. If it was simply misinformation, it would be very easy to deal with. You would simply say what the misinformation is, and you would say, hey, that's wrong. That's misinformation. This is the real information. No, that's not the problem. That wouldn't be a problem. The problem is the correct information that is out there and that the church is struggling to deal with because they have been trying and trying and trying, mostly with success, for decades to keep that true information that's damaging about the church hidden and away from the members. But now with the advent of the Internet, they have lost control of it. They are forced to more and more confront it as evidenced by more and more of these conference talks that are talking about doubts and questions. Now, they're not talking about them specifically, but they're talking about them because they're there. And the church has been dragged kicking and screaming to the transparency table and having to publish on their official church site essays that deal mm, to one degree or another and generally in apologetic type ways with some of these issues that are causing people to leave the church because they are accessing them through the internet and finding out the truth about them. This is the problem that's going on and this is the problem that this talk is seeking to address. And the way it's seeking to address it is the same old playbook, which is stay away from the information. Don't go to non-church approved sources. Don't read it. Don't listen to those people. Don't listen to me for crying out loud. I am just giving you misinformation. No, the problem is with Radio Free Mormon, I'm giving you the correct information that the LDS Church doesn't want you to have. And that's why it doesn't want you to listen to me. Going on with the talk, we live in a day in which misinformation about our beliefs abounds. In times such as these, a failure to protect and deepen our spiritual roots is an invitation to have them gnawed at by those who seek to destroy our faith in Christ and our belief in His restored church. Let me just say something, okay? For me personally, I'm not seeking to destroy anybody's faith in Christ. I'm not seeking to destroy anybody's belief in the LDS Church. What I am seeking to do is to broadcast the truth behind enemy lines so that those who hear it can understand what I'm saying, can check it out and verify. Is what I'm saying correct? 
Maybe you don't think it's correct. Maybe you think something else. That's fine. That's great. I am not here to direct anybody in any specific way. I am not seeking to destroy anybody's faith in Christ, and I am not seeking to destroy anybody's belief in the Mormon church. I am just seeking to get the truth out there. And if the leaders of the LDS church are so concerned that the truth will destroy your belief in the LDS church, then maybe they need to adapt the teachings of the LDS church to correspond with the truth instead of trying to prevent its members from finding out the truth. As somebody once said, I'm not having a faith crisis. The Mormon church is having a truth crisis. He goes on, quoting the Apostle Paul when he said, For I know this, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. His warning and those of our prophets and apostles remind us that we must do all we can to fortify ourselves spiritually against words of opposition and deception. Of course, once again, any words that are opposed must be deceiving as well, against words of opposition and deception. Any words that oppose are deceiving, and therefore any words which do not oppose but support the church are truthful. This is the paradigm from which Elder Ardern is speaking. The truth of a statement is not judged on its own merit, but rather it is judged on whether it supports the church or whether it is opposed to the church. He makes the obligatory reference to the great and spacious building and says, Should the pointed fingers from the other side of the river of water, where a great and spacious building stands, appear to be directed at you in the attitude of mocking, demeaning, and beckoning, to them, I ask that you immediately turn away, so that you are not persuaded by cunning and devious means to separate yourself from truth and its blessings. Do not listen to anybody who says anything negative about the church, because that is cunning, it's devious, it's deceptive, it's demeaning, and therefore it should not be listened to. But that is not enough for Elder Ardern. More must be done. He says, however, this alone will not be enough in this day when perverse things are being spoken, written, and portrayed. So now, it's not just cunning and devious and deceptive, it's also perverse. He says, the greater the light in our lives, the fewer the shadows. I think that is not necessarily correct. Actually, the greater the light in our lives, the deeper the shadows. If you look on a cloudy day and look at a tree and the shadow under the tree... The less light in the sky, the less the shadow. But on a sunny day, the shadows are actually darker. It's a minor point, and I'm probably quibbling, but I think there may be some philosophical and theological importance to that observation. Really, the greater the light in our lives, the more numerous the shadows and the darker the shadows. One might say it even goes along with what the Book of Mormon says in Second Nephi chapter 2 about opposition in all things. But I digress. However, even in an abundance of light, we are exposed to people and comments that misrepresent our beliefs and try our faith. Elder Ardern then goes on to quote Neil A. Maxwell, who said, A patient disciple will not be surprised nor undone when the church is misrepresented. Now, there's probably some truth in that, that a disciple will not be surprised nor undone when the church is misrepresented. The problem comes for the patient disciple when he or she finds out that more often than not, the misrepresentations of the church are done by the church itself. In other words, the church is representing itself to be something that it is not. And going back to Elder Ardern's comment, 
that we are exposed to people and comments that misrepresent our beliefs and try our faith? Yes, amen. It definitely tries our faith when we are exposed to church leaders who make comments that misrepresent our beliefs and our history. And not only can that try our faith, it can break our faith. You know, having faith in the church and its leaders implies having trust in the church and its leaders. And when we find out that church leaders have been telling us things that are not true, that does try our faith in them. And if we find out that they have misrepresented the church and its history more than we can bear, then it can break our faith. Our faith in the church is much like our faith with other people. Our faith is actually increased in other people when they tell us hard truths. Because if other people tell us hard truths about themselves, then we feel that we can probably have faith in everything else they say. If they are willing to tell us bad things about themselves, then we are more likely to believe the good things that they say about themselves. That's just the way it works. But the same way that we deal with other people is the same way we deal with the church. If the church were willing to tell bad things about itself in general conference, we would be more likely to have faith in the church leaders. The problem is that they continually tell a one-sided, whitewashed, sanitized version of church history. And then when we find out the reality is far different from that sanitized version that the church leaders have told us, we feel betrayed. We feel we can't trust them anymore, and we lose faith in the church leaders, and we lose faith in the church they represent. How often have I heard of members who become disaffected with the church because they find out the church has not been straight with them? And it really doesn't matter what the issue is that they find out about, whether it's Joseph Smith's polygamy or the way Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon with a seer stone or the Book of Abraham. The issue itself usually is not the big problem. The big problem is that the church has not been telling us the truth. And once that faith is lost, it usually cannot be regained. And yet here, in this talk by Elder Ardern, he's continuing the same path that leads to members not having faith in the church leaders. What he is saying is, do not read anything outside of officially published church materials. Those officially published church materials give the one-sided, sanitized, whitewashed version of the church. And so he continues to set members up for disillusionment when they find out the truth is something far different than what they have been taught by church leaders. Elder Ardern goes on, questions about our church history and beliefs do arise. Well, thank you for recognizing that obvious fact, Elder Ardern. There needs no ghost, my lord, come from the grave to tell us this. Then he says, where we turn to find the correct answers requires great care. So he's of the opinion that there are correct answers to questions about church history and beliefs. But where we find those correct answers is what is important. He states this, There is nothing to be gained in exploring the views and opinions of the less informed or disenchanted. Let's unpack that sentence for a moment. There is nothing to be gained in exploring the views and opinions of the less informed or disenchanted. First, note the implication that those who are disenchanted are those who are less informed. The more you know about the church, the more enchanted or the more faithful you will be. Now, there are certainly members of the church who know a great deal about church history and beliefs who remain 
active members in the church. Such people as Richard Bushman, Fiona and Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason, Grant Hardy, all come to mind. Nobody could argue that they do not know a lot about church history and beliefs, and yet they are active. However, because of their studies and the knowledge they have gained, their views tend to be different than those of the Orthodox member and those that are espoused in general conference. The greater study and knowledge that they have done and gained lead people like Richard Bushman to say the dominant narrative is not true. It also leads Patrick Mason to say that we have stacked too many things in the truth cart, that the cart cannot bear all the truth claims that the LDS Church espouses, and we need to be careful about what it is we put in the truth cart and what it is that we do not. And once again, Elder Ardern used as a tactic from the old playbook the church has used for decades in order to try and keep its members from looking outside the church and church-correlated sources for information about the church. The correct answers are found within the church, and there's nothing to be gained in exploring the views and opinions of the less informed or disenchanted. By the way, the other side of the coin from Richard Bushman and the Givens and Patrick Mason are many, many, many other Mormons who have indeed studied the gospel, have indeed studied church history, and have become disaffected or disenchanted from the church as a result. For every Richard Bushman, there are a hundred other members who have studied church history and lost their faith as a result. He is the exception and not the rule. In fact, I personally am acquainted with many members of the church who know a great deal about church history from their own study who have become disenchanted. They did not become disenchanted because they were less informed, as Elder Ardern would have it. Rather, they became disenchanted because they became more informed. And I will put it out there as a proposition that the more one learns about the LDS church, the more likely it is that one will become disenchanted. And they will certainly become disenchanted with the dominant narrative of the church, regardless of whether they remain active in the church. Elder Ardern now goes to DNC 88.118 to use the phrase that we hear often in the church, seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom. And he takes this expression about best books and redefines it. I remember back in my first years in the church, getting my hands on a book by Sterling W. Sill. He was a general authority in the church. He was quite prolific, and he wrote books such as one titled The Majesty of Books. And in that book, Sterling W. Sill, from many, many, many years ago, quoted this phrase from the Doctrine and Covenants, Seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom. And what he did was he wrote a book about great works of literature and drew lessons and illustrations from great works of literature. For Sterling W. Sill, who lived and wrote, I think, back in the 50s and 60s, this passage applied to the great works of world literature. Seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom. Elder Ardor now is going to turn that around. He's going to restrict the definition, and he is going to make best books apply to the scriptures, to the words of the prophets given in general conference and in church published sources, and basically anything that's published by Deseret Books. Here's what he says. There is a rich abundance of these books, the best books, there is a rich abundance of these books written by heaven-inspired church leaders and recognized, safe, and reliable church history and doctrine scholars. So now the best books are not world literature, including the Book of Mormon and the Scriptures, 
and the words of the prophets. Instead, it is now restricted to officially sanctioned, correlated materials. Why? Because they are recognized, safe, and reliable, according to him. Let's take each of those words in order. First off, he says that they are written by recognized church history and doctrine scholars. Well, there certainly are a lot of books that are published by Deseret that are written by church history and doctrine scholars in the church. The reason this makes me chuckle is because later on he's going to indirectly refer to the church essays in the gospel topics section, where there are approximately 13 essays dealing with somewhat thorny issues relating to church history and doctrine from an apologetic point of view. At the bottom of each essay, it says that it's written by church scholars and historians, but none of them are named. None of them are mentioned. They are anonymous. And that's why I have to laugh when he says, there is a rich abundance of these books written by heaven-inspired church leaders and recognized church history and doctrine scholars. Well, we might be able to recognize them if we knew their names, but none of the names of the scholars who wrote the church essays are appended to the essay, so they are not recognized. Elder Ardern says they are safe scholars. Well, that's certainly true if by safety you mean those who are going to argue that the church is true. There certainly is some degree of safety in ignorance, but as has been said by someone else, before knowledge there was certitude. So the certitude and the certainty that we have and the safety we have in church history and doctrine scholars comes before real knowledge is gained. Finally, Elder Ardern says that they are reliable church history and doctrine scholars. Well, if by reliable, he means they are reliable in trying to keep you in the church by withholding information from you and taking negative information and trying their best to slant it in a positive light, yes, they are reliable. If by reliable, he means that they're going to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, then these church history and doctrine scholars may not fit the bill. But Elder Ardern does not want this simply to happen at church or general conference. He wants it to happen in the home as well. He wants to make sure that at no time and no place do faithful Latter-day Saints look at any non-correlated material in order to answer their questions about the church. Here's what he says. The home is an ideal place for families to study and share valuable insights from the scriptures and the words of the prophets and to access material at lds.org. That's the official church website. There you will find an abundance of information about gospel topics such as the first vision accounts. There is the indirect reference to the church essays. Gospel Topics, that is the name of the category under which the essays can be found. It's not capitalized in his talk. He refers to it more generally, and he talks about the first vision accounts. He says, there you will find an abundance of information about gospel topics, such as the first vision accounts. So, although indirect, this may be the first reference in general conference to the church essays. He says nothing more about the first vision accounts. He simply says that they exist, that they're there, and good luck to you in finding them on the church website. Once you go to the first vision accounts, you'll be able to find the four accounts of the first vision that were written or dictated by Joseph Smith, and you will also find why it is that the contradictions between the different accounts are not really contradictions after all. He goes on, as we study from the best books... We protect ourselves against the menacing jaws of those that seek to gnaw 
at our spiritual roots. And in conclusion, Elder Ardern does what so many other speakers do. They recognize the fact that in spite of everything that can be read on the church website, in spite of all our prayer and study and pondering, we will still have questions that are not answered or are not answered to our satisfaction. The implicit recognition of this fact is found when Elder Ardern says, with all our prayer, study, and pondering, there may still remain some yet-to-be-answered questions. Well, yet-to-be-answered questions generally means they're never going to be answered at all, but we'll call them yet-to-be-answered because it sounds like, well, maybe they will be answered out there in the future sometime, maybe in the next life. But what should we do with these questions that we do not get answers to? He says we must not let that extinguish the flame of faith that flickers within us. No, of course we should not let that happen. Such questions, he says, are an invitation to build our faith and should not fuel a passing moment of deceiving doubt. So here's where he has it both ways. If you have questions and you find answers to them, that builds your faith. That's good. But if you have questions that you find no answers to, well, that builds your faith even more. So answered questions are good, and unanswered questions are even better. It's also interesting how he calls it a passing moment of deceiving doubt. Well, if it were just a passing moment, people would not be having so much trouble with it. If it were just a passing moment, people would not be leaving the church by the thousands. Greg Prince recently said that in the year after November 2015, when the policy about gays and their children was leaked to the world... 60,000, that's 60,000 Mormons, asked to have their names removed from the membership records of the church. And you and I know that if 60,000 went to the effort of asking for the church to remove their names, there are many, many more members who simply stopped going to church. Greg Prince also recounts that in the 10 months after that policy was leaked in November of 2015, one stake president said they had lost over 400 members of their stake, calculating the percentage at 10% of their stake gone because of that policy. So they are not passing moments of deceiving doubt that are causing the problem. They are days and weeks and months, and in many cases they are years of members struggling to make the new information they are learning fit with their worldview that they learned growing up in the dominant narrative of Mormonism. And finally, it breaks, it cracks, the shelf gets nuked, and they either stop going to church or they ask to have their name removed from the records of the church. So that concludes Elder Ardern's talk. The last talk of conference and the last talk we will comment on comes from Elder Neil Anderson. Neil Anderson's talk in General Conference is basically a talk about General Conference. And Elder Anderson will say that those who speak in General Conference, especially the apostles, are saying exactly what God wants the saints to hear, and it is as if Jesus himself were speaking. He takes the extreme view of putting conference talks up there with Scripture, although, of course, not canonized Scripture. But really, now that President Nelson has made the new policy, Scripture, by calling it Revelation, and now that Elder Holland has fallen suit in this conference by making the proclamation on the family, Scripture, by calling it Revelation, there seems to be nothing to keep Elder Anderson from implying that all conference talks are Scripture because they are given by Revelation. And indeed, what else would you call the exact words that Jesus would have us hear but Scripture and Revelation? Here's what he says, I give you my witness that Jesus is the Christ, 
that he guides the affairs of this sacred work, and that General Conference is one of the very important times he gives direction to his church and to us personally. So everything that we have talked about in these three episodes of Radio Free Mormon regarding General Conference, regardless of the contradictions, regardless of how ridiculous it may seem, regardless of how inconsistent it may be, this is actually what Jesus is telling us. It is not the leaders of the church who are being contradictory, silly, and inconsistent. No, that's Jesus. So if you've got a problem that anything the leaders of the church are saying, your problem isn't with the leaders of the church. It's with Jesus. You'll have to take it up with him. Elder Anderson goes on, Now as we meet under the direction of President Thomas S. Monson, we anticipate hearing the will of the Lord, the mind of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. There he's quoting from Scripture. We trust in his promise, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. Again, he's quoting from Scripture. What I want to focus on here is the passing observation that it seems that Elder Anderson had prepared this talk to be given at an earlier point in conference. Notice it's a bit strange that he's giving the closing talk in conference, and yet he says, Now we anticipate hearing the will of the Lord which makes it sound like we anticipate hearing the will of the Lord from speakers that will go on after Elder Anderson is done. So it sounds to me like that for whatever reason, Elder Anderson thought that he would be speaking early in conference when he prepared this talk. He got reassigned at some point, probably last minute, to the last talk in general conference, and he forgot to change that word. We anticipate hearing the will of the Lord. And here's the part in the talk where Elder Anderson focuses on the apostles. He says, for the first presidency and the twelve, i.e. the fifteen apostles, who normally speak each conference, the enormous responsibility of preparing their messages is both a recurring burden and a sacred trust. Now he's going to talk about Elder Dallin Oaks. Years ago, before serving as a general authority, I asked Elder Dallin H. Oaks if he prepared a separate talk for each state conference. He responded that he did not, but added... But my general conference talks are different. I may go through 12 to 15 drafts to be sure that I say what the Lord would have me say. So when Elder Oaks gives a talk like he did in this general conference, in which we've talked about separately, Elder Oaks does not get a pass because he may have chosen his words hastily. He has prepared and planned and very carefully crafted his message. And unfortunately, when we look at his message... He has very carefully crafted it, not only to reveal information, but to conceal information, as we talked about before. Elder Anderson goes on, With no topics assigned, we see heaven beautifully coordinating the subjects and themes of eternal truth each and every conference. So, once again, he is invoking the inspiration of God in the themes that emerge from general conference. We see heaven, i.e. God, beautifully coordinating the subjects and themes of eternal truth each and every conference. Now, in some sense, I'm going to take him at his word that there are no topics assigned. However, the themes that come out from general conference do not have to be coordinated by heaven. There are only a certain discrete number of things that can be talked about in the gospel, at least in the correlated gospel of today's Mormonism. And when you have six two-hour sessions crammed with talks given by church leaders for a total of 12 hours, and let's give that an average of five speakers per session of general conference, five times six is 30 different speakers with 30 different subjects. Now, if you're going to have 30 speakers talking about 30 different gospel subjects, 
what are the odds that some of them are going to be talking about the same subject? These are the patterns and the themes that Elder Anderson is talking about. So he sees it as God coordinating the themes and the patterns, but it is just as easy to see it as a matter of statistical probability. The other thing about this is he says that no topics are assigned. However, he tips his hand later on to make it clear that even if no topics are assigned, it appears that general authorities are able to see and review the talks of other general authorities in preparation for giving their general conference addresses. What do I mean by this? Well, later on in his talk, Elder Anderson is going to quote from other general authorities who have spoken in general conference. And he will quote the exact words of their messages. And not only will he quote from people who spoke in the preceding sessions, where theoretically he could have jotted it down and had it entered into the teleprompter in advance, though I think that's unlikely. He even quotes from general authorities who spoke before he did in the same session that he spoke in, in the Sunday afternoon session. Here's what he says. He starts off by quoting President Monson. Now, President Monson did not speak in general conference due to his failing health, so he has to quote him from prior messages. And he quotes President Monson to the effect of how important it is to read and study the general conference addresses. Elder Anderson then says, The teachings of general conference are the considerations the Lord would have before us now and in the months ahead. So once again, there's his repeated theme, that the Lord is the one who is talking through general conference. It is revelation. It is virtual scripture, according to Elder Anderson. Now he goes on to quote from talks given by other general authorities during this conference. President Henry B. Eyring from this morning. And then he quotes him. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf from yesterday. And then he quotes him. President Russell M. Nelson from yesterday afternoon. And then he quotes him. Elder Dallin H. Oaks yesterday. And then he quotes him. Now notice that all the people that he's quoting are people who are senior to him in the apostleship. There's President Monson, there's President Eyring, there's President Uchtdorf. He goes right down the line from president of the church to first counselor to second counselor. He then goes to President Russell M. Nelson, who is the next in line. He then goes to Elder Dallin H. Oaks, who is next in seniority after Russell Nelson. And unfortunately, the thing he quotes from Elder Dallin H. Oaks is the following. I testify that the proclamation on the family is a statement of eternal truth, the will of the Lord for his children who seek eternal life. So the abomination of a talk that Elder Oaks gave in general conference now has a second witness in Elder Anderson because he quotes him in his talk. I suppose he's thinking that in the mouths of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, but that word by Elder Oaks will not be established no matter how many mouths it's repeated in. Finally, he goes on to Elder M. Russell Ballard. Now, Elder Ballard is right next in seniority after Elder Oaks, so he is quoting them in order of seniority. But notice what he does with Elder M. Russell Ballard. All the other people that he's quoted are from prior sessions of General Conference. Elder M. Russell Ballard, he quotes from just a few minutes ago. He says, and Elder M. Russell Ballard from just a few minutes ago. That's what he says in the talk from just a few minutes ago. We need to embrace God's children compassionately and eliminate any prejudice, including racism, sexism, and nationalism. I talked about that earlier on in the episode because it was earlier on in this session of General Conference. The question then becomes, how is it that Elder Anderson, in his conference talk, at the end of the Sunday afternoon session, 
is able to quote verbatim from Elder Russell Ballard's talk in the same session. Obviously, the general authorities have access to and are able to read the conference talks of other general authorities. And the only reason I bring this up is because it takes away some of the mystique that Elder Anderson wants us to feel about how these general authority talks sort of line up each and every general conference when we know and understand what he has let us know that the general authorities have access to each other's talks well in advance of general conference, at least far enough advance for them to quote each other even in the same session and have that put into the teleprompter and read it while they're speaking. Elder Anderson concludes with his testimony. I testify that in this conference we have heard the voice of the Lord. We should not be alarmed when the words of the Lord's servants run counter to the thinking of the world, and at times, our own thinking. Now that is certainly true as a general principle. My concern is that what Elder Anderson means by this is we should not be alarmed when the words of the Lord's servants, like Elder Oaks, run counter to the thinking of the world, and at times, our own thinking. When the words of the apostles offend our conscience, as Elder Oaks' talk does mine, I think it is time to be alarmed. And not simply to think that, oh, this must be the word of the Lord because it runs counter to the way I think. Once again, the apostles are trying to have it both ways. It was in last conference that one of the apostles, I believe it was Elder Rasband, said that the Spirit testifies to us when we hear words that are familiar. In other words, when we hear things that we already believe being spoken over the pulpit, and it's familiar to us, then that is truth. Now, Elder Anderson wants the other side of the coin and saying, when we hear words spoken over the pulpit that run counter to our own thinking, well, that's the truth as well. So if we agree with what the apostles say, it's the word of the Lord. If we don't agree with what the apostles say, it's the word of the Lord. They've pretty much got all their bases covered. And here I want to bring up a quote from one of my favorite prophets, Walt Whitman, who said, Re-examine all you have been told in school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul. When I apply the words of that prophet to general conference, I find a number of things, and most especially the talk given by Elder Oaks, to insult my soul. And therefore, I dismiss it. And not only do I dismiss it, I reject it. And not only do I reject it, I testify that it is not the word of God. That whoever is inspiring Elder Oaks to give that talk in that message during his 12 to 15 drafts, it is not coordinated by heaven. So that concludes our analysis of the different talks given in General Conference. There are a number of themes that I saw coming out of General Conference. And the themes that I see emerging from this General Conference are the following. Number one. The leaders are imperfect. They make mistakes, but follow them anyway. Follow the imperfect prophet. He might know the way. Follow the fallible prophet. He might go astray. Number two, we still have lots and lots of miracles in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, just not the miraculous kind of miracles. And if you have doubts or questions about the Church, do not by any means turn for answers to anything but Church-approved sources. If you find answers, it will build your faith. If you don't find answers, it will build your faith even more. But under no circumstances will leaders ever tell you what the answers actually are, or even the questions. 
This concludes our general conference post-mortem for October of 2017. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 